Today, we are finishing up our series in 1 Thessalonians, and today, being a finale, will be uh, a little jam-packed because Paul ends the letter to the church at Thessalonica with a series of commands. It's a fairly lengthy series of commands, and yet each command has purpose. And so um, today we will be working our way through each command, but um, we won't be spending an exorbitant amount of time on each one because we would uh, be here for days. But these commands are categorized in such a way that we can see them where they ought to be and how, how it affects us as those who belong to and participate within the life of the church. And so we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5 in verses 12 through 28. And as you turn there, I'm going to briefly recap our time in the book. So Paul began his letter to this church with encouragement and affection because they were a church that he had only spent several weeks with. In fact, he was on a missionary journey and felt compelled to go to Thessalonica. And while there, he spent a very brief time, roughly three weeks. And yet, the people in this town, it was, a, it was really a city uh, in the ancient world that was well known for importing and exporting goods. It was a stop on trade routes. And so there was a lot of affluence. There was a lot of transient people. There was a lot of culture, right? A, a lot of ex, uh, expression of various cultures. And yet the gospel was proclaimed by Paul and came down in power and a church was formed. A church that bore witness to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. And so Paul writes this letter with love and affection to these people because they received the word not as if it was from Paul, but as if it was from God himself. And we know that it was. And he speaks of the church, reminding them of the things that they were taught, much of that being what the end times looks like and what is our hope in light of the return of Christ. In fact, every chapter has a sentiment of the end times, the last days, and the return of Christ. Furthermore, he gives them specific instructions on how they ought to live in light of such a reality. And so there's three, break, there's three divisions of the lists of commands that we see in verses 12 through 28. And so I'm going to give you them now. They're going to be my main points. The first series of commands is categorized as life under the elders. Life under the elders. And then from there, we will see life among yourselves. And then finally, life from within. And by life, I simply mean what does it look like to live as the church, to do life as the church. And so before we read, I also want to just make it clear that these commands presuppose, they presuppose that believers are actually being the church, that you are actually living as if you are the church. Some of these commands will serve as a litmus test for you today because if you can't fulfill the command because of perhaps proximity, maybe you're never here, or perhaps because you have bitterness towards a brother or a sister, or perhaps you view the elders in an improper light, then these commands will serve as a litmus test for your spiritual health today. And yet, the commands are for our joy because this is what it looks like to be the church. And so the standard will be held high because God's righteous standard is high. And yet, the promise is that we can walk in these because it is Christ who sanctifies us, as we will see. And so, read with me. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 12, we will pray and begin. 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God, church. Let's pray. Father, we magnify your name today, recognizing that you are God and we are not. We are weak and pitiful people who are prone to wandering in our hearts and in our minds, who are prone to inaction and despondency, who are prone to utter rebellion in light of your commands. But I pray that your mercy towards us in Christ would be real and manifest today. That though cut by the word, we would also be healed by it that you would have preeminence in our time today, that you would rule and reign in our lives as a church, and that we would give everything we are to all of you because you're worthy. I pray that your word would do its work within us today, that we would be an obedient people because you are who you say you are and your commands are good and they are for our joy. We worship you today. You are the Lord God. It's in the name of Christ Jesus I pray and ask this. Amen. First section, life under the elders. The first command given is respect the elders. Paul says very plainly, we ask you, brothers, we ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. I'm going to be using elders as to signify those, those men, but the Bible uses elders and pastors interchangeably. Okay, so by elders, I mean pastors. So life under the elders. Respect those who labor among you. That word among really means not just in your midst, but with you. And so the elders are those who are laboring with you. So it presupposes that members of the church are laboring. It presupposes that we are all participating in the task at hand. That there is no one on the sidelines watching as a spectator, but rather members of the body of Christ are doing the work of ministry, whatever that may look like. And it will look different for each person given their giftings and their calling. We know through the illustrations of the Bible that we are a body and that each one is a different member of the body. Some are fingers, if you will. Some are toes. Others, ears. But the point being is that we're all laboring together. And yet, the elders, that is, the pastors, are those who labor among us and are over you in the Lord. There is a spiritual hierarchy of authority. So who are the elders? Who are the pastors? If you don't know already, there's three in this church. Ben, Eric, and myself. And it might 
seem a little strange for me to be preaching that you ought to respect us, but the word is plain, and I'm not going to shy from it, okay? The word is plain, and there's a reason Paul wrote this. There's a reason. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. To respect simply means to acknowledge and admit that we are indeed who we are. Right, that we are indeed the pastors of this church and that we are indeed laboring among you and are over you in the Lord. That's simply what respect means. This position of authority is God-given and God-ordained. It's not something that can simply be grasped for anyone who wants it, but it is a calling specific to those who have been called by Christ to pastor in that church. Pastors are always men. This is important. If you disagree with that, I would say just please please read the Bible. But the reason being is there is a hierarchy of authority in the design of God. And from the family unit outward, we see men as the leaders in their home And if the church is to reflect life in the home, then the church must also have men who are leaders because a woman who is a pastor would be usurping the authority of her husband should she be his pastor, okay? And so these men who are called as elders, and again, in this church, Ben, Eric, and myself are those who are working among you. So it's not, if we're not working, if we're not laboring, we're not doing our jobs, It's assumed that we will fulfill our obligation, but the command is also that you too fulfill that obligation, that we are laboring together. We take primary responsibility in the labor, but it's not, but that responsibility is not solely ours. It is a family effort, and so we work together. We also model that labor. We also model it, okay? The church must also respect the fact that elders are called to admonish, admonish the people. Admonishment is a very strong word. It's to give instruction or counsel with a sharp edge. It's expected that we will admonish you. Why? Because we're all prone to wonder. We're all prone to disregard the commands of Christ. We're all prone to think our way is better and therefore God must be wrong. Therefore, admonishment is necessary. You will, we will see that admonishment must happen among one another as well. It's not just a tool used by the elders, but it's sharp because it is a warning that something is awry, something is off. In Hebrews 13, we see that the church is called to obey its leaders because the leaders will give an account on your behalf on the day of judgment. That's in Hebrews 13, 17. I would encourage you to write that down if you're not familiar with this concept. Myself and the other elders will give an account on the day of judgment on behalf of your souls. And it says, therefore, obey your leaders so that they can lead you with joy. Lead you with joy. And I say this so that you know many, many of you in this room have caused us great joy. There are others who have caused us much sadness grief and some despair it's worth it because Jesus is worth it but the commands are so plain the commands are so plain respect those who are over you in the Lord and finally esteem the elders highly in love to esteem means to regard or to consider Esteem the elders highly in love. It is the church's duty to esteem the elders in love. It's their duty. 
There are many critics of pastors in the church, and I don't mean necessarily this church, I speak of it universally. There are many critics. You could peruse Twitter or Facebook or any place or talk to your friends who belong to other churches, and I'm sure you will hear criticism regarding pastors in some way, shape, or form. Some of that criticism is, is, is due. Some of that criticism is due. But I'll say this. It's easy to criticize from afar. It's easy. It's much more difficult to criticize when you are in the thick of battle fighting the good fight together. When you are both engaged in spiritual warfare for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, it is hard to see the speck in your brother's eye. So here's the first litmus test that I mentioned earlier. If you default to critiquing every move we make and never offer real solutions or aren't even aware of the real problems that we as a church face in ministry, then this command is for you. Spectators don't have a right to criticize team captains. Other players do. Other players do. That's why I think people like sports, you know, team sports. I'm not knocking it, but you want to yell at the TV screen <laughs> when someone makes a bad play. We feed off that stuff. But the church must not be so. The church must not be so. There's no room from criticism for criticism if you are simply a spectator. So this is both a rebuke and an invitation. Come join the game. Come join the game. Come do battle with us. Let's fight powers and principalities. Let's fight the darkness that has consumed this town. Let's do it. Come fight with us. It will be hard. It will be tiring. It might even rob you of a lot of freedom some days, but it is worth it because this is the way of Jesus the Christ. So come fight with us. And finally, that was the last command specific to life under the elders, but this next one serves as a transition, okay? Transition command, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Being at peace serves as the final word to life under the elders, but also frames the following commands. Life among yourselves. To be at peace means to live harmoniously and without quarreling. In other words, let there be no divisions or hostility in this church. Now, Truth must not be sacrificed on the altar of peace. But that's not what Paul's getting at. He's writing to a church that knows the truth and is aiming to live in light of it. Therefore, let, let there be peace among us, both in regards to the church living under the authority of the elders and as the framework for all the commands as we live life amongst ourselves. So verses 14 through 15. We urge you, brothers. Notice in the previous section, he says, we ask you, we ask you. This next section begins with, we urge you. It's strong, it's forceful. Because... There are little foxes that want to creep into the church and sow division. It is the game plan of the enemy himself to create hostility, to create suspicion among one another, to sow seeds of discord so that some of you just leave thinking, oh, I'm going to find a better church or one that has things my way when in reality, you're leaving for yourself, not because Jesus called you. And so the command is so clear. 
be at peace. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. I told you that the admonishment is not just the task of the elders, but it's a collective task as the church. Instruct and counsel the idle. Who are the idle? Who are the idle? The idle are those who are sedentary. Think of that not just physically, but spiritually. They are not actively following Jesus or participating in the life of the church. Those are the idle. Idleness is sin. Why? You will not accidentally follow Jesus. It doesn't happen. You will not accidentally be faithful and obedient. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. Idleness is sin because it mocks God. Idleness presumes cheap grace. It presumes. I, really, I believe Jesus is the Christ, so it'll be all right. But I'm not going to pursue him. I'm not going to seek him. I'm not going to draw near to him. I'm not going to obey his word because his grace is there. But that's cheap grace, church. Whereas the grace offered us is costly. It costs Jesus his body and his blood, and it costs you your life, which is why Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me must first die. Anyone who actually wants to inherit the kingdom of God must lose their life. The grace of Christ is costly, and idleness does not recognize that. Therefore, we admonish the idle. We admonish them. We admonish them. If you have seen your brother standing still and you have turned a blind eye, there is blood on your hands. In Ezekiel 3, the Lord tells Ezekiel, warn the unrighteous that he may turn from his way and warn the righteous because he too can fall. And if you don't, you are guilty you're guilty. I know this is heavy, and I feel it. But this isn't for me. This isn't for you. This is because Christ is worthy. So let us engage in the work, family. Let us admonish the idol. We must... Sharply warn those who are idle among us. We must do it. Next, we see to encourage the faint-hearted. To encourage the faint-hearted. Faint, the faint-hearted are those who have grown weary in doing good. They are those who are slowly but surely aiming to put one foot in front of the other and are seeking to follow Christ. But because of trials and circumstances or maybe melancholy or problems within, they have grown faint. They have grown perhaps melancholy or despondent. They are having a hard time fulfilling the command in Galatians 6-9 to continue working hard. But the nature of faint-heartedness is different than idleness. Therefore, the remedy for it is different. Idleness is a rejection of the grace afforded to us in Christ. Faint-heartedness is an overwhelming of life as it is, or ministry as it is. And therefore, the command is to encourage those that are faint-hearted. Build them up. Offer them an encouraging word a word that stirs them from within and gives them the hope and joy that we really have as those who belong to Jesus. But encouragement belongs on the lips of those who see the faint-hearted. We are tasked to give encouraging words to them. It's our, it's our duty, it's our job. 
but let me make, make this clear. Encouragement's not for the idle. Admonishment is. There is a time to warn, and there is a time to encourage. We must be adept as the people of God at bearing witness to the sin within and rightly recognizing the sin in our brothers and sisters. Notice I say that rightly. There is a way to do it that is God-honoring and righteous and humble. And that's the task. Let's encourage the faint-hearted. Sometimes the faint-hearted don't know they're such. And so they feel like they're drowning in the midst of a really hard season. And so let us be vigilant to see them and to recognize it and to encourage them. Next, we see the command among yourselves is to help the weak. Help the weak. This command invokes the imagery of those who are strong helping those who are weak. There are other sentiments in the New Testament that express this. Perhaps it's a stronger brother or sister helping a weaker brother or sister. But more commonly, it's the church, all of us recognizing our weakness but having our strength as the family of God in Christ, collectively helping those who perhaps are falling off the bandwagon. Perhaps their knees are beginning to buckle and their hands are trembling and they're having a hard time actually picking up the foot to put it in front of the other. They're a bit beyond faint-heartedness because they are collapsing to the weight, under the weight of maybe sin or circumstances but we help them. We lock shoulders arm in arm and we carry our brothers and our sisters because this is the task. This is the task. Next, we see the command to be patient with all. Be patient with all. That's the tail end of verse 14. Be patient with all. Why? It is our duty as the church to be patient because the Lord has been and still is patient with us. He is. He stands even today long-suffering in our midst because he is seeking a transformative, sanctifying work, and it is slow, and he is merciful. And it is patience. Therefore, we too must be patient. We must extend the same grace and mercy to one another that we have first received. None of you in this room, if you belong to Jesus, chose him, He was patient and long-suffering with you. He called you in grace. He wooed your heart, mind, and soul into the grace that only He can afford to give. He was patient with you. He saw your rebellion from afar, and He called you. Therefore, let us be the same. Let us be patient towards one another. I learned a phrase this week. I didn't actually know it. <clears throat> the person who texted this to me, you know who you are. Tilting at windmills. I didn't know what that was. It means finding enemies who are false. Tilting is another word for jousting. Some of us go around tilting at windmills. <laughs> We're looking for someone or something to be upset about. We're fighting the wind. And when we don't know who or what we're fighting, we often turn on one another. And we're sharp and short with one another. We expect more out of someone else than we even expect out of ourselves. And so there's criticism in the church that's not just directed at the elders, but it's directed at one another. 
it must, it must be killed. We must be patient towards one another. And the follow-up command is in light of that. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. You will be hurt by someone in the church of God. It will happen. Sin is still among us. Our sanctification has not yet been made complete. You will be hurt. You will be hurt by someone's words, someone's actions, perhaps someone's lack of words or their inaction or your perceived, their perceived inaction. You will be hurt. And not just that, because a lot of times that happens with good intent. But you will also experience evil from the hand of one who is called brother or sister. It will happen if it hasn't already. God forbid it happens from Ben, Eric, or myself, but it will happen in the church. And the command is so plain. Don't repay anyone evil for that evil. Do not respond like in likeness to their action. Why? Because there's no belief in that. There's no faith in that. You're just living in the flesh. Evil does not overcome evil, but good overcomes evil. Therefore, do not repay anyone evil for evil. No matter the hurt or the pain, entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay. That is a promise. God will render everyone according to their works. And though I do not want to see judgment fall down on a brother or sister, sometimes that is our only hope, that the Lord disciplines them accordingly. But we offer grace and mercy. We do not repay evil for evil. It must not be seen in the church of God. Conversely, the second part of this verse says, but, but always, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This command has an order to it, and the order is intentional. We must first seek the good of one another. We must first seek the good of one another before we seek the good of outsiders. Some of you might think that's strange. In fact, I remember as a young Christian, I had first really came to faith when I was 18, reading the Bible. And I was reading Galatians. And in Galatians 6, it says, Do good to everyone especially those in the household of faith. I'm like, why? They know Jesus. Aren't I supposed to live in such a way that I'm just blessing all these non-believers so that they see Jesus? Good intent, but misunderstanding. Jesus makes it so plain. The world will know you by your love for one another. In fact, Jesus instructs us not to throw our pearls before swine. It's not that we look to the world with disdain or disgust because Jesus came to save the world. But our love, our fondness, our affection is first reserved for the household of God because Jesus has made us family. His blood did not just purchase individuals, but it bought him a bride. That bride is the church, and therefore we love one another. We always, always, that word's there for a reason, seek to do good to one another. We must have it on the forefront of our minds to do good to one another. My affection, my love, first belongs to Christ, but in Christ it then belongs to you. Some of you feel more affection 
to family members or friends who do not belong to Christ. And I would say that's misplaced. It lacks understanding of the gospel. Because Jesus, in dying and shedding his blood and breaking his body, he took those who were far and brought them near. He took hostile parties and brought peace. He took those who were rebels and revelers, and he said, you are my people, the sheep of my pasture. That's miraculous. That's miraculous. And to disregard one another is to sin against God and his design. His intent has been made so plain in the scriptures. And to say no to the church and yes to someone outside of it, there's no, there's no honor in that actually. Give yourselves first to be the family that God has paid in blood for us to be. That's the calling. That's the calling. We collectively bear witness to the Christ in this town. Jesus said it so plainly, the world will know you by your love for one another. Why do we think he's wrong? Why do we think our way is better? Let us love one another earnestly and with an affection that is deep within. And yet, we still ought to do good to everyone. But like I said, there's an order. There's an order. The church is a conduit of blessing. In the first covenant struck with Abraham, he was told that his descendants would be a blessing to the world. We are that blessing. We, in faith, are the offspring of Abraham. We are the blessing. But the blessing we give is first and foremost the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest treasure that we have and it is the greatest gift that we could give. And so it must frame what our doing good looks like. It must frame it and define it. But we are a blessing to everyone so we must love our neighbors, and I mean your real neighbors, the people that you live next door to. If you don't even know their names, I would encourage you to start there. Our coworkers, our lost family members, love them with a love that is first rooted in Christ. That's our task. That's our task. Okay, and... Now we see, starting in verse 16, our third section of the commands. Life from within. Life from within. These commands are specific to our hearts because we cannot obey these commands unless it first begins from within. Verse 16, rejoice always. Rejoice always. A proper view of Christ will always leave us with joy. Always. That doesn't mean he doesn't discipline us or allow us to suffer at the expense of our own actions and our own stupidity. But a right response a proper humbling of ourselves before Christ and a proper view of what he's given us will always leave us with joy. How do I know this? It's the goal of all of salvation that we will rejoice in seeing him face to face. And so by living in that joy now, by rejoicing always, we are bearing witness to the fact that the gospel is true and that Jesus is redeeming us when he returns. There will be suffering, there will be grief, there will be lament in our midst. And I know some of you are feeling it now. I know that. But listen, Christ is alive. And sin and suffering do not have the final say. Therefore, do not let your grief 
or your lament or your suffering have the final say? Entrust yourselves to Christ. His victory is for you. Therefore, we rejoice always without stopping. Pray without ceasing. In other words, do not stop praying. Let me frame this for you. This isn't some ascetic monk lifestyle, <laughs> okay? But you, as one who belongs to God in Christ, if you do, are called to always be in communion with the Lord Jesus. He calls us to abide in the vine. And our communion is in prayer where we are seeking him, we are savoring him, we are enjoying his presence and we are pleading for the things we need and we're entrusting ourselves to him. And it's, it happens from within. So as you work, you pray. As you pray, you pray. As you read the scriptures, you pray. As you do life in your neighborhoods, in your families, in your home, you're praying. You're praying. If we are to truly, truly live in the daylight, as we saw last week, is the call of the church to walk in the daylight, to not revel in the night. Because that's what the Gentiles, the idolaters do. If we're going to live in the daylight, as those who are alive, we must be a praying people. We must be. It's not easy. But that's intentional. If it were easy, it wouldn't be sanctifying. But prayer is a denial of self. It's an active denial of self. Because I bear witness to this personally. I'm, I love David. I think about myself too much. And I got a pretty good feeling you all do as well. Thanks. We're all guilty. We all succumb to the spirit of this age that tells us to love self, to assert our feelings as facts, to assume that we are always right, to think that our way is the truth and is the best. And prayer pulls the rug right out from under that thinking because it lays ourselves bare before the throne room of God. We have no place to hide. It exposes us. That's why we're often scared to pray. We don't want God to find what's lurking within. And yet he already sees it. So why would you run? There is no hiding. Therefore pray. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. This ties, this, this is like a supplement to rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Giving thanks is our warfare. This is how we fight spiritually. This with prayer. The world commiserates with one another about the per perceived partiality and injustice of the world. Everyone I know complains about what they don't have or what they think they deserve. But the believer understands that he has it better than he deserves. Much better. Much better. We have everything we need in the resurrected Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We have everything we need in the resurrected Christ. Gratitude in Christ is our battle cry. This is how we defeat sin, self, and the egotistical spirit of this age. But you can't have gratitude unless you first see rightly what you have. And you won't see rightly until you begin to commune with the Lord in prayer. All these commands play a part. All these commands play a part. Next, we see the command 
to do not, these are the negative commands. The other ones were positive, meaning do these things, okay? Positive commands. These are negative commands. Don't do these things. The first negative command is do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. That quench not only means satisfy. We often think of quenching as satisfying our thirst. But to quench also means to exterminate, right? If there are any um, blacksmiths in the room, you would often quench something with water after you've heated it. Or anyone who is tempered metal would understand that concept. But to quench means to extinguish. Therefore, do not extinguish the spirit. Don't do it. If we are to walk by the Spirit, we must learn to obey the Spirit from within. Not our Spirit within, but the Spirit that lives within us, that has been given to us by Christ. We must walk with Him, letting Him rule and reign in our lives. Listen, He is speaking. He is speaking. I say this as a fact He is speaking. If you have never heard his voice, seek him. Seek the word. Seek his voice. And listen. Open your ears. Do not ignore him. Next, we see do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. This is a two part command. We know from the scriptures that some are given the gift of prophecy. It is a part of the church. There are some in our midst. Some of you perhaps have this gift and you don't even know it yet. The gift of prophecy. This doesn't necessarily mean that you can predict the future, okay? I'm not talking about Nostradamus, right? Nostradamus. And yet, there's a real possibility that some of you have inclinations of the future. We see this in the book of Acts. There were many warning Paul of his upcoming predicaments. But primarily in the New Testament, prophecy has to do with rightly discerning the spirit of this age, the spirit of another, and the proper word of Christ for that situation. Or the proper word to be spoken into a circumstance or into a person's heart. Okay? And therefore, we as the church must not despise prophecies. How do we not despise them? Well, we must test everything. Some prophecies will be wrong. Okay? How is that so? If it's truly a prophecy, it must be true. Well, yes. And if they're truly a prophet, wouldn't they be always true? Not necessarily. Having a gift, a spiritual gift, we have to work it out. We have to kind of exercise with it and if a gift is a gift it's been given it's not on a leash okay so if that person truly has been given the gift that gift could be used properly but it might be used improperly just like if a father in the room gave his son a bicycle the proper thing to do would be to ride the bike per the per the design and uh, the brakes would work the chain would be taught, you know, and all those sorts of things. But the improper use of that bicycle were, would be maybe to rip the wheels off and try to put uh, spinning rudders on it and go, you know, paddle down the, the meadows on a, on a boat bike, you know. It might work, but it probably won't. <laughs> okay, really terrible illustration, but I just came up with it on the fly. So, <laughs> so point being, point being, gifts can be handled or wielded improperly and they can also be abused because again, we're all sinners. So that's why we test prophecies. We test everything. So what does that testing look like? What does that testing look like? Well, we test it through the lens of prayer, Bible reading, and observation. All right? Prayer, Bible reading, and observation. There were many self-proclaimed prophets who made some political statements at the last election cycle, proving 
pretty clearly that they had no clue what they were saying. Most of them all came back and reneged and apologized. But that's the point I'm making. They, I believe sometimes people with prophetic giftings can get ahead of themselves, all right? And I'm not just calling out these people. This happens with all of us. Point being, test it, test it. Pray to the Lord. Read your Bible. Discern, discern, observe. Hold fast to what is good. That's the third part of this kind of three-part line command. Hold fast to what is good. After you have tested it, after you have seen that that prophetic utterance was a word from the Lord to you or a word from the Lord for the church, hold fast to it. Hold fast to it. If it is confirmed by the scriptures, seems to be good for the church and is observably true in our midst, hold fast to it because the Lord is speaking. The Lord is speaking. That which is determined to be good ought to be held onto and protected. Next, in the last negative command, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain. To abstain from something means to not participate in anything, in anything that even has a hint of unrighteousness to it. Anything that has a hint or an odor of evil to it, don't participate in it. Don't participate in it. Here's a little jump start on sanctification for you. If you still watch movies with sex scenes with nudity, stop. If you find it very difficult after hanging out with some of your non-believing friends to not profane as they do or think as they do or say or think crudely or sexually like they do, stop hanging out. You think, that's crazy. I know these people. Is not Christ better? Is not Christ and his word better? Abstain from every form of evil. If you are associated with groups, socially or politically or whatever, that banner evil as righteousness, flee. Flee. Treasure the word of Christ. Treasure Christ and his kingdom and flee. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. You flee what is evil and you pursue what is good. That's the life of a believer. It's the life of a believer. It, if, if, you are not, if you have not been trained by this yet, it will feel like death. It will feel like death. But I'm telling you here, as a man who has aimed to practice this for well over a decade now, it is absolutely worth it. And God is just. He is righteous and he is good. And Jesus is better than it all. Jesus is absolutely better than it all. Flee evil and pursue that which is good. You will need to be watchful about what you see, what you hear, what you say, and what you do. You will need to be watchful. Pay attention. Pay attention. If you are living sleepily, how can you walk as those who walk sober-minded in the day? Don't be sleepy but be awake, alert, and observe the world. It is seeking to devour you. And last, our last section, I haven't mentioned this one yet, is Paul's benediction to the church. And this, this is where it all hinges. This is where it all comes down to something glorious and 
grace-filled because we see commands and it's almost as if we're looking at the law and we say, how can I walk rightly in all these commands? How can I live rightly before the standard of God? And here's Paul's benediction. A benediction, by the way, is a ceremonial blessing. So it's a, a blessing is a ceremonial blessing is a bit like a request, like may the Lord Jesus do this, but it's also an affirmation that he is doing this. Starting in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself. He's the God of peace. Notice that we were called to be at peace among ourselves. He is the God of peace. Be at peace among yourselves. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Notice that he is sanctifying us completely. There's, this is two parts. You guys can go ahead and come up. This is two parts. It's not just that he will complete our sanctification, but notice that it's paired with this. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is sanctifying you completely and you wholly, meaning all of you. It's not just your soul that's being saved. That has been bad rhetoric from the church for a long time. All of you is being saved. That's why resurrection is our salvation. Because he made us as living people who have bodies. We're not souls trapped in this casket of flesh. But all of you is going to be redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He lives bodily today at the right hand of the Father. And he will resurrect you bodily. Therefore, all of you, meaning everything that makes you, you, will be saved. And he's going to do it. So don't live in such a way that you think, I can separate life. I can live my church life here because this is some spiritual stuff, but over here in the body, I'm going to kick it with the homies. No, right? He wants all of you. He wants all of you. He wants every bit of what makes you, you. Spirit soul and body so our devotion must be whole we give all of ourselves to him not just every sphere of us but every sphere of life if you are a man in the room who is a husband and a father then live like a man surrendered to Christ and fulfill your roles if you are a woman in the room and are a wife and a mother live like a woman surrendered to Christ fulfill your roles and for those who are single live surrendered to God in Christ and let the spirit take advantage of your singleness that you may be used by him in such a way that others may not be render yourselves to Christ this is your spiritual worship. And the promise is this. We will be kept blameless for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, that is Jesus, who calls you, he's faithful. He has promised to do it. Therefore, we can walk in obedience to the commands. He's promised to do it. He's promised to work within us a way to obedience. Therefore, do not grow weary. Do not lose hope. Do not become despondent, but walk in joy. Walk in freedom. You are free to obey because Christ is your righteousness and he has already secured for you a blameless position on the day of judgment. 
Look at the end of verse 24. He will surely do it. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? He will surely do it. That is, that is good news, church. That is good news. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord. If you want to kiss, do it on the cheeks, okay? I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And again, a fact for our encouragement today. Verse 26, excuse me, 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. His grace is with us. Let us walk as those who have the Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy. And I'm praying that your word would have preeminence in our hearts and in our minds. That we would be trained by it and sanctified by it. That we might offer ourselves and all of ourselves as obedient people living life with one another as the church. This is your design. No man is an island. And you have made us to be a people for your possession, the sheep of your pasture. We as a flock are yours. Therefore, would we love you? Would we love one another? Would we obey all the standards of authority that you have given us in the church? Jesus, we need you for this, but we rejoice because we have you. You will surely do it. And it's in your good name I pray and ask all this, Christ Jesus. Amen.